0: Chapter Number Four of The Old Adam. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Lewin. The Old Adam by Arnold Bennett. Chapter Four Entry into the Theatrical World. Part One Once, on a short visit to London, Edward Henry had paid half a crown to be let into a certain enclosure with a very low ceiling. This enclosure was already crowded with some three hundred people sitting and standing. Edward Henry had stood in the only unoccupied spot he could find behind a pillar. When he had made himself as comfortable as possible by turning up his collar against the sharp winds that continually entered from the street, he had peered forward and seen in front of this enclosure another and larger enclosure also crowded with people but more expensive people after a blank interval of thirty minutes a band had begun to play at an incredible distance in front of him extinguishing the noises of traffic in the street after another interval an oblong space rather further off even than the band suddenly grew bright And Edward Henry, by curving his neck, first to one side of the pillar and then to the other, had had tantalizing glimpses of the interior of a doll's drawing-room, and of male and female dolls therein. He could only see, even partially, the interior half of the drawing-room, a little higher than the heads of the dolls, because the rest was cut off from his vision by the lowness of his own ceiling. The dolls were talking but he could not catch clearly what they said, save at the rare moments when an omnibus or a van did not happen to be thundering down the street behind him. Then one special doll had come exquisitely into the drawing-room, and at the sight of her the five hundred people in front of him, and numbers of other people perched hidden beyond his ceiling, had clapped fervently, and even cried aloud in their excitement, and he too had clapped fervently and had muttered, Bravo! This special doll was a marvel of touching and persuasive grace, with a voice, when Edward Henry could hear it, that melted the spine. This special doll had every elegance, and seemed to be in the highest pride of youth. At the close of the affair, as this special doll sank into the embrace of a male doll from whom she had been unjustly separated, and then straightened herself deliciously and confidently smiling to take the tremendous applause of Edward Henry and the rest, edward henry thought that he had never assisted at a triumph so genuine and so inspiring oblivious of the pain in his neck and of the choking foul atmosphere of the enclosure accurately described as the pit he had gone forth into the street with the subconscious notion in his head that the special doll was more than human was half divine and he had said afterwards with immense satisfaction at bursley yes I saw Rose Euclid in Flower of the Heart." He had never set eyes on her since. And now, on this day at Wilkins's, he had seen in the restaurant, and he saw again before him in his private parlour, a faded and stoutish woman, negligently, if expensively dressed, with a fatigued, nervous, watery glance, an unnatural pale violet complexion a wrinkled skin and dyed hair, a woman of whom it might be said that she had escaped grandmotherhood, if indeed she had escaped it, by mere luck, and he was point-blank commanded to believe that she and Rose Euclid were the same person. It was one of the most shattering shocks of all his career, which nevertheless had not been untumultuous, and within his dressing-gown, which nobody remarked upon, he was busy picking up and piecing together, as quickly as he could, the shivered fragments of his ideas. He literally did not recognise Rose Euclid. True, fifteen years had passed since the night in the pit, and he himself was fifteen years older, but in his mind he had never pictured any change in Rose Euclid. True, he had been familiar with the enormous renown of Rose Euclid, as far back as he could remember taking any interest in theatrical advertisements but he had not permitted her to reach an age of more than about thirty-one or two whereas he now perceived that even the exquisite doll in paradise that he had gloated over from his pit must have been quite thirty-five then well he scornfully pitied rose euclid he blamed her for not having accomplished the miracle of eternal youth he actually considered that she cheated him is this all "'What a swindle!' he thought, as he was piecing together the shivered fragments of his ideas into a new pattern. He had felt much the same as a boy, at Bursley Annual Wakes once, on entering a booth which promised horrors and did not supply them. He had been done all these years.' Reluctantly he admitted that Rose Euclid could not help her age. But at any rate she ought to have grown older beautifully, with charming dignity and vivacity, in fact she ought to have contrived to be old and young simultaneously or in the alternative she ought to have modestly retired into the country and lived on her memories and such money as she had not squandered she would no right to be abroad at worst she ought to have looked famous and because her name and fame and photographs as an emotional actress had been continually in the newspapers therefore she ought to have been refined delicate distinguished and full of witty and gracious small-talk, that she had played the heroine of Flower of the Heart four hundred times, and the heroine of the Grenadier four hundred and fifty times, and the heroine of the Wife's Ordeal nearly five hundred times, made it incumbent upon her, in Edward Henry's subconscious opinion, to possess all the talents of a woman of the world, and all the virgin freshness of a girl." which shows how cruelly stupid Edward Henry was in comparison with the enlightened rest of us. "'Why?' he protested secretly. She was even tongue-tied." Uh, "'Glad to meet you, Mr. Machin,' she said awkwardly, in a weak voice, with a peculiar gesture as she shook hands, then a mechanical nervous giggle, and then silence. "'Happy to make your acquaintance, sir,' said Mr. Seven-Sacks and the arch-famous American actor-author also lapsed into silence. But the silence of Mr. Seven Sachs was different from Rose Euclid's. He was not shy. A dark and handsome, tranquil, youngish man, with a redoubtable square chin, delicately rounded at the corners, he strikingly resembled his own figure on the stage, and, moreover, he seemed to regard silence as a natural and proper condition. He simply stood— in a graceful posture with his muscles at ease and waited mr bryany behind seemed to be reduced in stature and to have become apologetic for himself in the presence of greatness still mr bryany did say something said mr bryany sorry to hear you've been seedy mr machin oh yes rose euclid blurted out as if shot it's very good of you to ask us up here mr seven sachs concurred adding that he hoped the illness was not serious edward henry said it was not won't you sit down all of you said edward henry miss er uh, euclid they all sat down except mr bryany sit down bryany said edward henry i'm glad to be able to return your hospitality at the turk's head this was a blow for mr bryany who obviously felt it and grew even more apologetic as he fumbled with assumed sprightliness at a chair "'Fancy your being here all the time,' said he, "'and me looking for you everywhere.' "'Mr. Bryany Seven Sacks interrupted him calmly, "'have you got those letters off?' "'Not yet, sir.' Seven Sacks urbanely smiled. "'I think we ought to get them off to-night.' "'Certainly,' agreed Mr. Bryany with eagerness, and moved towards the door. "'Here's the key of my sitting-room.' Seven Sacks stopped him, producing a key." Mr. Bryany, by a mischance catching Edward Henry's eye as he took the key, blushed. In a moment Edward Henry was alone with the two silent celebrities. "'Well,' said Edward Henry to himself, "'I've let myself in for it this time, no mistake. What in the name of common sense am I doing here?' Rose Euclid coughed and arranged the folds of her dress. "'I suppose like most Americans you see all the sights,' said Edward Henry to Seven Sacks. The Five Towns is much visited by Americans. What do you think of my dressing-gown?' "'Bully,' said Seven Sacks, with the faintest twinkle, and Rose Euclid gave the mechanical nervous giggle. "'I can do with this chap,' thought Edward Henry. The gentleman-in-waiting entered with the supper-menu. "'Thank heaven!' thought Edward Henry. Rose Euclid, requested to order a supper after her own mind, stared vaguely at the menu for some moments and then said she did not know what to order artichokes edward henry blandly suggested again the giggle followed this time by a flush and suddenly edward henry recognised in her the entrancing creature of fifteen years ago her head thrown back she had put her left hand behind her and was groping with her long fingers for an object to touch Having found at length the arm of another chair, she drew her fingers feverishly along its surface. He vividly remembered the gesture in flower of the heart. She had used it with terrific effect at every grand emotional crisis of the play. He now recognised even her face. "'Did Mr. Bryany tell you that my two boys are coming up?' she said. "'I left them behind to do some telephoning for me.' "'Delighted,' said Edward Henry. "'The more the merrier,' and he hoped he spoke true." "'But her two boys! "'Mr. Marrier, he's a young manager. "'I don't know whether you know him. "'Very, very talented. "'And Carlo Trent. "'Same name as my dog,' Edward Henry indiscreetly murmured, "'and his fancy flew back to the home he had quitted, "'and Wilkins's and everybody in it "'grew transiently unreal to him. "'Delighted,' he said again. "'He was relieved that her two boys were not her offspring. "'At least that was something gained. "'You know, the dramatist!' said rose euclid apparently disappointed by the effect on edward henry of the name of carlo trent really said edward henry i hope you won't mind me being in a dressing-gown the gentleman in waiting obsequiously restive managed to choose the supper himself leaving he reached the door just in time to hold it open for the entrance of mr Marrier and mr carlo trent who were talking with noticeable freedom and emphasis in an accent which in the five towns is known as the Haw, haw, the Lartidar or the Kensingtonian accent. Part two Within ten minutes, within less than ten minutes, Alderman Edward Henry Machin's supper party at Wilkins's was so wonderfully changed for the better that Edward Henry might have been excused for not recognising it as his own. The service at Wilkins's where they profoundly understood human nature was very intelligent somewhere in a central bureau at wilkins's sat a psychologist who knew for example that a supper commanded on the spur of the moment must be produced instantly if it is to be enjoyed delay in these capricious cases impairs the ecstasy and therefore lessens the chance of other similar meals being commanded at the same establishment hence no sooner had the gentleman-in-waiting disappeared with the order then certain esquires appeared with the limbs and body of a table which they set up in edward henry's drawing-room and they covered the board with a damask cloth and half covered the damask cloth with flowers glasses and plates and laid a special private wire from the skirting-board near the hearth to a spot on the table beneath edward henry's left hand so that he could summon courtiers on the slightest provocation with the minimum of exertion then immediately brown bread and butter and lemons and red pepper came followed by oysters, followed by bottles of pale wine, both still and sparkling. Thus, before the principal dishes had even begun to frizzle in the distant kitchens, the revellers were under the illusion that the entire supper was waiting just outside the door. Yes, they were revellers now, for the advent of her young men had transformed Rose Euclid, and Rose Euclid had transformed the general situation. At the table, edward henry occupied one side of it mr seven sachs occupied the side opposite mr marrier the very very talented young manager occupied the side to edward henry's left and rose euclid and carlo trent together occupied the side to his right trent and marrier were each about thirty years of age trent with a deep voice had extremely lustrous eyes, which eyes continually dwelt on Rose Euclid in admiration. Apparently all she needed in this valley was oysters and admiration, and she now had both in unlimited quantities. "'Oysters are darlings,' she said, as she swallowed the first. Carlo Trent kissed her hand respectfully, for she was old enough to be his mother. "'And you are the greatest tragic actress in the world, Rose.' he said, in the Kensingtonian bass. A few moments earlier, Rose Euclid had whispered to Edward Henry that Carlo Trent was the greatest dramatic poet in the world. She flowered now beneath the sun of those dark, lustrous eyes, and the soft rain of that admiration from the greatest dramatic poet in the world. It really did seem to Edward Henry that she grew younger. Assuredly, she grew more girlish, and her voice improved." and then the bottles began to pop, and it was as though the action of uncorking wine automatically uncorked hearts also. Mr. Seven-Sacks, sitting square and upright, smiled gaily at Edward Henry across the gleaming table, and raised a glass. Little Maria, who at nearly all times had a most enthusiastic smile, did the same. In the result five glasses met over the central bed of chrysanthemums. Edward Henry was happy surrounded by enigmas for he had no conception whatever why rose euclid had brought any of the three men to his table he was nevertheless uplifted as he looked about him at the rich table and at the glittering chandelier overhead albeit the lamps thereof were inferior to his own and at the expanses of soft carpet, and at the silken textured walls, and at the voluptuous curtains, and at the couple of impeccable gentlemen in waiting, and at Joseph, who knew his place behind his master's chair, he came to the justifiable conclusion that money was a marvellous thing, and the workings of commerce mysterious and beautiful. He had invented the Five Towns Thrift Club working men and their wives in the five towns were paying their twopences and sixpences and shillings weekly into his club and finding the transaction a real convenience and lo he was entertaining celebrities at wilkins's for mind you they were celebrities he knew seven sachs was a celebrity because he had verily seen him act and act very well in his own play and because his name in letters a foot high had dominated all the hoardings of the five towns as for rose euclid could there be a greater celebrity such was the strange power of the popular legend concerning her that even now despite the first fearful shock of disappointment edward henry could not call her by her name without self-consciously stumbling over it without a curious thrill and further he was revising his judgment of her as well as lowering her age slightly on coming into the room she had doubtless been almost as startled as himself and her constrained muteness had been probably due to a guilty feeling in the manner of passing two open remarks to a friend about a perfect stranger's manner of eating artichokes the which supposition flattered him by the way he wished she had brought the young friend who had shared her amusement over his artichoke with regard to the other two men he was quite ready to believe that carlo trent was the world's greatest poet and to admit the exceeding talent of mr marrier as a theatrical manager in fact unmistakable celebrities one and all he himself was a celebrity a certain quality in the attitude of each of his guests showed clearly that they considered him a celebrity and not only a celebrity but a card Bryony must have been talking and the conviction of this rendered him happy His magnificent hunger rendered him still happier, and the reflection that Brindley owed him half a crown put a top on his bliss. "'I like your dressing-gown, Mr. Machin," said Carlo Trent, suddenly, after his first spoonful of soup. "'Then I needn't apologise for it,' Edward Henry replied. "'It is the dressing-gown of my dreams,' Carlo Trent went on. "'Well,' said Edward Henry, "'as we're on the subject, I like your shirt-front.' Carlo Trent was wearing a soft shirt. The other three shirts were all rigidly starched. Hitherto Edward Henry had imagined that a fashionable evening shirt should be, before all else, bulletproof. He now appreciated the distinction of a frilled and gently flowing breastplate, especially when a broad purple eyeglass ribbon wandered across it. Rose Euclid gazed in modest transport at Carlo's chest. "'The colour—' Carlo proceeded, ignoring Edward Henry's compliment—'the colour is inspiring. So is the texture. I have a woman's delight in textures. I could certainly produce better hexameters in such a dressing-gown.' Although Edward Henry, owing to an unfortunate hiatus in his education, did not know what a hexameter might be, he was artist enough to comprehend the effect of attire on creative work, for he had noticed that he himself could make more money in one necktie than in another and he would instinctively take particular care in the morning choice of a cravat on days when he meditated a great coup why did you get one maria suggested do you really think i could asked carlo trent as if the possibility were shimmering far out of his reach like a rainbow Rather. "'smiled Marrier. "'I don't mind laying a fiver "'that Miss Machin's dressing-gown "'came from Drook's in Eald Bond Street.' "'But instead of saying old, he said, "'Eald?' "'It did,' Edward Henry admitted. "'Mr. Marrier beamed with satisfaction. "'Drook's, you say?' "'murmured Carlo Trent. "'Eald Bond Street,' And "'wrote down the information on his shirt-cuff. "'Rose Euclid watched him write. "'Yes, Carlo,' she said but don't you think we'd better begin to talk about the theatre you haven't told me yet if you got hold of Longlay on the phone of course we got heard of him said maria he agrees with me that the intellectual is the better name for it rose Euclid clapped her hands i'm so glad she cried now what do you think of it as a name mr machin the intellectual theatre you see it's most important that we should settle on the name isn't it it is no exaggeration to say that Edward Henry felt a wave of cold in the small of his back, and also a sinking away of the nevertheless quite solid chair on which he sat. He had more than the typical Englishman's sane distrust of that morbid word, intellectual. His attitude towards it amounted to active dislike. If ever he used it, he would on no account use it alone. He would say, intellectual, and all that sort of thing. With an air of pushing violently away from him everything that the phrase implied. The notion of baptizing a theatre with the fearsome word horrified him. Still, he had to maintain his nerve and his repute, so he drank some champagne and smiled nonchalantly, as the imperturbable duellist smiles while the pistols are being examined. Well, he murmured you see maria broke in with a smile ecstatic almost dancing on his chair there's no use in compromise compromise is and always has been the curse of this country the unintellectual drama is dead dead nobody can deny that all the box offices in the west are proclaiming it should you call your play intellectual mr sachs edward henry inquired across the table i scarcely know said mr seven sachs calmly "'Ah, oh, no, I've played it myself fifteen hundred and two times, "'and that's saying nothing of my three subsidiary companies on the road.' "'What is Mr. Sachs's play?' asked Carlo Trent fretfully. "'You know, Carlo,' Rose Euclid patted him, "'overheard.' "'Oh, I've never seen it. "'But it was on all the hoardings.' "'I never read the hoardings,' said Carlo. "'Is it in verse?' "'No, it isn't,' Mr. Seven Sax briefly responded.' "'but I've made over six hundred thousand dollars out of it.' "'Then of course it's intellectual,' asserted Mr. Marry positively. "'That proves it. "'I'm very sorry. "'I've not seen it either. "'But it must be intellectual.' "'The day of the unintellectual drama is over. "'The people won't have it. "'We must have faith in the people, "'and we can't show our faith better "'than by calling it our theatre by its proper name. "'The intellectual Theatre. "'His theatre? thought Edward Henry. "'What's he got to do with it?' "'I don't know that I'm so much in love with your intellectual,' muttered Carlo Trent. "'Aren't you?' protested Rose Euclid, shocked. "'Of course I'm not,' said Carlo. "'I told you before, and I tell you now, that there's only one name for the theatre—the Muses Theatre. "'Perhaps you're right,' Rose agreed, as if a swift revelation had come to her. "'Yes, you're right.' "'She'll make a cheerful sort of partner for a fellow,' thought Edward Henry. "'If she's in the habit of changing her mind like that every thirty seconds, his appetite had gone. He could only drink.' "'Naturally I'm right. Aren't we going to open with my play? And isn't my play in verse?' "'I'm sure you'll agree with me, Mr. Machin, that there's no real drama except the poetical drama.' Edward Henry was entirely at a loss. Indeed, he was drowning in his dressing-gown so favourable to the composition of hexameters.' "'Poetry?' he vaguely breathed. "'Yes, sir,' said Carlo Trent, "'poetry.' "'I've never read any poetry in my life,' said Edward Henry, like a desperate criminal. "'Not a line.' Whereupon Carlo Trent rose up from his seat, and his eyeglasses dangled in front of him. "'Mr. Machin," said he, with the utmost benevolence, "'this is the most interesting thing I've ever come across. "'Do you know, you're precisely the man I've always been wanting to meet?' the virgin mind, the clean slate. Do you know, you're precisely the man that it's my ambition to write for.' "'It's very kind of you,' said Edward Henry, feebly, beaten, and consciously beaten. He thought miserably, "'What would Nellie think if she saw me in this gang?' Carlo Trent went on, turning to Rose Euclid. "'Rose, will you recite those lines of Nash?' Rose Euclid began to blush that bit you taught me the day before yesterday only the three lines no more they are the very essence of poetry poetry at its purest we'll see the effect of them on mr machin we'll just see it's the ideal opportunity to test my theory now there's a good girl oh i can't i'm too nervous stammered rose you can and you must said carlo gazing at her in homage nobody in the world can say them as well as you can now rose euclid stood up one moment carlos stopped her there's too much light we can't do with all this light mr machin do you mind a wave of the hand and all the lights were extinguished save a lamp on the mantelpiece and in the disconcertingly darkened room rose euclid turned her face towards the ray from this solitary silk-shaded globe her hand groped out behind her found the tablecloth, and began to scratch it agitatedly. She lifted her head. She was the actress, impressive and subjugating, and Edward Henry felt her power. Then she intoned, The brightness falls from the air. Queens have died young and fair. Dust hath closed Helen's eye and she ceased and sat down there was a silence bravo murmured carlo trent bravo murmured mr mariam edward henry in the gloom caught mr seven sachs unalterable observant smile across the table well mr machin said carlo trent edward henry had felt a tremor at the vibration of rose Euclid's voice but the words she uttered had set up no clear image in his mind, unless it might be of some solid body falling from the air, or of a young woman named Helen walking along Trafalgar Road Bursley on a dusty day and getting the dust in her eyes. He knew not what to answer. Is that all there is of it? he asked at length. Carlo Trent said, It's from Thomas Nash's Song in Time of Pestilence. The closing lines of the verse are, I am sick. I must die. Lord have mercy on me. Well, said Edward Henry, recovering, I rather like the end. I think the end's very appropriate. Mr. Seven Sacks choked over his wine and kept on choking. Part three. Mr. Marrier was the first to recover from this blow to the prestige of poetry. Or perhaps it would be more honest to say that Mr. Marrier had suffered no inconvenience from the contretemps. His apparent gleeful zest in life had not been impaired. He was a born optimist of an extreme type, unknown beyond the circumference of theatrical circles. "'I say,' he emphasised, "'I've got an idea. "'We ought to be photographed like that.' "'Do you know, end of good?' he glanced encouragingly at Rose Euclid. "'Don't you see it in the illustrated papers? "'A private supper-party at Wilkins's Hotel. "'Miss Rive's Euclid reciting a verse at a discussion of the plans "'for her new theatre in Piccadilly Circus. "'The figures reading from left to right are "'Mr. Seven Sacks, the famous actor-author. "'Miss Rive's Euclid.' Mr. Carlo Trent, the celebrated dramatic poet, Mr. Alderman Machin, the well-known Midlands capitalist, and so on, Mr. Mario repeated, and so on. "'It's a notion,' said Rose Euclid, dreamily. "'But how can we be photographed?' Carlo Trent demanded with irritation. "'Perfectly easily.' "'Now?' "'In ten minutes. I know a photographer in Brook Street.' would he come at once carlo trent frowned at his watch rather mr marrier gaily soothed him as he went over to the telephone and mr marrier's bright boyish face radiated forth the assurance that nothing in all his existence had more completely filled him with sincere joy than this enterprise of procuring a photograph of the party Even in giving the photographer's number, he was one of those prodigies who remember infallibly all telephone numbers. His voice seemed to gloat upon his project. And while Mr. Marrier, having obtained communication with the photographer, was saying gloriously into the telephone, Yes, Wilkins's. No, quite private. I've got Miss Rose Euclid here, and Mr. Seven Sachs. While Mr. Marrier was thus proceeding with his list of star attractions, Edward Henry was thinking— Her new theatre! Now, it was his a few minutes back. The well-known Midlands capitalist, eh? Ooh, ah!" He drank again. He said to himself, "'I've had all I can digest of this beastly baloney stuff,' he meant the champagne. "'If I finish this glass, I'm bound to have a bad night.' And he finished the glass, and planked it down firmly on the table. "'Well,' he remarked cheerfully, "'If we're to be photographed, I suppose we shall want a bit more light on the subject.' Joseph sprang to the switches. "'Please!' Carlo Trent raised a protesting hand. The switches were not turned. In the beautiful dimness, the greatest tragic actress in the world, and the greatest dramatic poet in the world, gazed at each other, seeking and finding solace in mutual esteem. "'I suppose it wouldn't do to call it the Euclid Theatre rose questioned casually without moving her eyes splendid cried mr marrier from the telephone it all depends whether there are enough mathematical students in london to fill the theatre for a run said edward henry oh do you think so murmured rose surprised and vaguely puzzled at that instant edward henry might have rushed from the room and taken the night mail back to the five towns and never any more have ventured into the perils of london if Carlo Trent had not turned his head and signified by a curt-reluctant laugh that he saw the joke. For Edward Henry could no longer depend on Mr. Seven-Sacks. Mr. Seven-Sacks had to take the greatest pains to keep the muscles of his face in strict order, the slightest laxity of them, and he would have been involved in another and more serious suffocation. "'No,' said Carlo Trent, "'the Muses' Theatre is the only possible title.' "'There is money in the poetical drama,' he looked hard at Edward Henry, as though to stare down the memory of the failure of Nash's verse, "'I don't want money. I hate the thought of money. But money is the only proof of democratic appreciation, and that is what I need, and what every artist needs. Don't you think there's money in the poetical drama, Mr. Sachs?' "'Not in America,' said Mr. Sachs. "'London is a queer place.' look at the runs of stephen phillips plays yeah i only reckon to know america look at what pilgrims made out of shakespeare i thought you were talking about poetry said edward henry too hastily and isn't shakespeare poetry carlo trent challenged well i suppose if you put it that way he is edward henry cautiously admitted humbled he was under the disadvantage of never having seen or read shakespeare His sure instinct had always warned him against being drawn into Shakespeare. "'And has Miss Euclid ever done anything finer than Constance?' "'I don't know,' Edward Henry pleaded. "'Why, Miss Euclid, in King John?' "'I never saw King John,' said Edward Henry. "'Do you mean to say,' expostulated Carlo Trent in italics, "'that you never saw Rose Euclid as Constance?' and edward henry shaking his abashed head perceived that his life had been wasted carlo for a few moments grew reflective and softer it's one of my earliest and most precious boyish memories he murmured as he examined the ceiling it must have been in eighteen rose euclid abandoned the ice with which she had just been served and by a single gesture drew carlo's attention away from the ceiling and towards the fact that it would be clumsy on his part to indulge further in the chronology of her career she began to blush again mr Marrier, now back at the table after a successful expedition beamed over his eyes It was your Constance that led to your friendship with the Countess of Chell, wasn't it, Rose? You know—he turned to Edward Henry—miss Euclid and the Countess are very intimate. Yes, I know, said Edward Henry. Rose Euclid continued to blush. Her agitated hand scratched the back of the chair behind her. Even Sir John Pilgrim admits I can act Shakespeare— she said in a thick, mournful voice, looking at the cloth as she pronounced the august name of the head of the dramatic profession. It may surprise you to know, Mr. Machen, that about a month ago, after he would quarrelled with Selina Gregory, Sir John asked me if I'd care to star with him on his Shakespearean tour around the world next spring, and I said I would if it include Carlo's poetical play The Orient Pearl, and he wouldn't. No, he wouldn't, and now he's got little cora pride she isn't twenty-two and she's going to play juliet can you imagine such a thing as if a mere girl could play juliet carlo observed the mature actress with deep satisfaction proud of her and also proud of himself i wouldn't go with pilgrim now exclaimed rose passionately not if he went down on his knees to me nothing on earth would induce me to let him have the orient pearl carlo trent asseverated with equal passion he's lost that for ever he added grimly it won't be he who'll collar the profits out of that it'll just be ourselves not if he went down on his knees to me rose was repeating to herself with fervency the calm of despair took possession of edward henry he felt that he must act immediately he knew his own mood, by long experience. Exploring the pockets of the dressing-gown which had aroused the longing of the greatest dramatic poet in the world, he discovered in one of them precisely the piece of apparatus he had required, namely a slip of paper, suitable for writing. It was a carbon duplicate of the bill for the dressing-gown, and showed the word DROK in massive printed black, and the figures FOUR POUNDS FOUR SHILLINGS in faint blue. He drew a pencil from his waistcoat and inscribed on the paper. "'Go out, and then come back in a couple of minutes, and tell me someone wants to speak to me urgently in the next room.' With a minimum of ostentation, he gave the document to Joseph, who, evidently well trained under Sir Nicholas, vanished into the next room before attempting to read it. "'I hope,' said Edward Henry to Carlo Trent, "'that this money-making play is reserved for the new theatre. "'Utterly!' said Carlo Trent, with Miss Euclid in the principal part. "'Rather,' sang Mr. Marrier, "'rather.' "'I shall never, never appear at any other theatre, Mr. Machin said Rose, with tragic emotion, once more feeling with her fingers along the back of her chair. "'So I hope the building will begin at once. In less than six months we ought to open.' "'Easily,' sang the optimist." Joseph returned to the room and sought his master's attention in a whisper. What is it? Edward Henry asked irritably. Speak up. A a gentleman wishes to know if he can speak to you in the next room, sir. Well, he can't. He said it was urgent, sir. Scowling, Edward Henry rose. Excuse me, he said. I won't be a moment. Help yourself to the liqueurs. You chaps can go, I fancy. The last remark was addressed to the gentleman in waiting. The next room was the vast bedroom, with two beds in it. Edward Henley closed the door carefully and drew the portiere across it. Then he listened. No sound penetrated from the scene of the supper. "'There is a telephone in this room, isn't there?' he said to Joseph. "'Oh, yes, there it is. Well, you can go.' "'Yes, sir.' Edward Henley sat down on one of the beds by the hook on which hung the telephone, and he cogitated upon the characteristics of certain members of the party which he had just left. "'I'm a virgin mind, am I?' he thought. "'I'm a clean slate.' "'Well, their notion of business is to begin by discussing the name of the theatre, "'and they haven't even taken up the option. "'Ye gods, intellectual, muses, the Orient Pearl, and she's fifty, that, I'll swear. "'Not a word yet of real business, not one word. "'He may be a poet, I dare say he is. "'He's a conceited ass. "'Why, even bryany was better than that lot. "'Only Saxe turned bryany out. "'I like Saxe, but he won't open his mouth.' capitalist well they spoilt my appetite and i hate champagne the poet hates money no he hates the thought of money and she's changing her mind the whole blessed time a month ago she'd have gone over to pilgrim and the poet too like a house on fire photographed indeed the ballet photographer will be here in a minute they take me for a fool or don't they know any better anyhow i am a fool i must teach em summat he seized the telephone hello he said into it I want you to put me on to the drawing-room of suite number forty-eight please who oh me i'm in the bedroom of suite number forty-eight machin alderman machin thanks that's all right he waited then he heard marius kensingtonian voice in the telephone asking who he was is that mr machin's room he continued imitating with a broad farcical effect the acute kensingtonianism of mr Marrier's tones is miss maria's euclid there oh she is well you tell her that sir john pilgrim's private secretary wishes to speak to her thanks all right i'll hold the line a pause then he heard rose's voice in the telephone and he resumed miss euclid yes sir john pilgrim i beg pardon Banks? Oh, Banks! No, I'm not Banks. I suppose you mean my predecessor. He's left. Left last week. No, I don't know why. Sir John instructs me to ask if you and Mr. Trent could lunch with him tomorrow at one-thirty. What? Oh, at his house. Yes, I mean flat. Flat! I said flat. You think you could? Pause. He could hear her calling to Carlo Trent. Thanks. No, I don't know exactly, he went on again, but I know the arrangement with Miss Pride is broken off, and Sir John wants a play at once. He told me that at once. Yes, The Orient Pearl. That was the title at the Royal first, and then there's the World Tour. Fifteen months at least in all, so I gathered. Of course, I don't speak officially. Well, many thanks. So good of you. I'll tell Sir John it's arranged. One thirty tomorrow. Goodbye. He hung up the telephone. The excited, eager, effusive tones of Rose Euclid remained in his ears. Aware of a strange phenomenon on his forehead, he touched it. He was perspiring. "'I'll teach him a thing or two, he muttered. And again. "'Serves her right. Never, never appear at any other theatre, Mr. Machin. Bended knees. Utterly. Cheerful partners. Oh, cheerful partners!' He returned to his supper-party. Nobody said a word about the telephoning. But Rose Euclid and Carlo Trent looked even more like conspirators than they did before, and Mr. Marrier's joy in life seemed to be just the least bit diminished. "'So sorry,' Edward Henry began hurriedly, and, without consulting the poet's wishes, subtly turned on all the lights. "'Now, don't you think we'd better discuss the question of taking up the option? You know, it expires on Friday.' "'No,' said Rose Euclid girlishly. It expires to-morrow. That's why it's so fortunate we got hold of you to-night.' "'But Mr. Bryany told me Friday, and the date was clear enough on the copy of the option he gave me.' "'Mistake of copying,' beamed Mr. Marrier. "'However, it's all right.' "'Well,' observed Edward Henry, with heartiness, "'I don't mind telling you that for sheer calm coolness you take the cake. However, as Mr. Marrier so ably says, it's all right. Now, I understand, if I go into this affair—' I can count on you absolutely and also on mr Trent's services he tried to talk as if he had been diplomatizing with actresses and poets all his life absolutely said rose and mr carlo trent nodded you iscariots edward henry addressed them in the silence of the brain behind his smile you iscariots the photographer arrived with certain cases and at once rose euclid and carlo trent began instinctively to pose to think edward henry pleasantly reflected that they are hugging themselves because sir john pilgrim's secretary happened to telephone just while i was out of the room End of chapter four